Have you ever brought your magic to Walt Disney World like, hey, we came to play? Did you tip your tiara to a Creole princess or get goofy officially? Step up like a boss and save the day? Or see what life's like under the tree of life? Did you? If you could. Would you? When we come through, it's true magic. Because we came to play. Bring the magic at Walt Disney World Resort. With Memorial Day savings at the Home Depot, you can give your lawn or garden beds a pop of color and protection. Right now, get a special buy on Scott's Earth Grow Mulch, five bags for just $10. Help your soil retain moisture longer with color that lasts up to 12 months. Shop Memorial Day savings for a special buy on Scott's Earth Grow Mulch. Five bags for just $10 at the Home Depot. How doers get more done. I'm Will Gray, and welcome to the all-new Golf Central podcast presented by TaylorMade. Each week, myself and other GolfChannel.com writers will gather to discuss the latest news from the golfing world. Today, however, we have a special episode hosted by Golf Channel's Rich Lerner to kick off 2020. To celebrate the 25th anniversary of Golf Channel's launch on January 17, 1995, we've produced our first ever long-form narrative podcast on the making of Golf Channel. Over the next hour, we'll hear from the key players, Golf Channel co-founders Joe Gibbs and the late Arnold Palmer, as well as Matt Scalisi, the man who literally built Golf Channel's headquarters in less than seven months, plus the original cast of anchors, producers, and reporters. Golf Channel has definitely seen a lot of change over the last 25 years. And speaking of change, the driver head was in need of a drastic one to provide more performance. So TaylorMade changed the shape altogether with their new SIM driver, which allowed them to make it fast and forgiving where every golfer needs it, the downswing. The pros love the new shape, but the biggest reason TaylorMade changed the shape was to help make you into a better golfer. The all-new SIM driver only from TaylorMade. Without further ado, we now present Day One, The Making of Golf Channel. I was trying to raise the money for the Golf Channel and had multiple meetings in New York. And somewhere during the night when I went to bed, uh, it was snowing. And about two o'clock in the morning, the snow stopped and it started raining. And when I came out at eight to go to my first meeting, those streets were like a slurpee up to the top of the curbs, as four or five inches deep. And you couldn't get from one curb to the next curb unless you were walking across the street through this stuff. Got to my first meeting, feet were freezing, icy cold all day. Had two more meetings, same sort of thing happened. When I got back to the hotel that night and took off my shoes and socks from my ankles down, my feet were just black from the dye in the shoes that had dyed my feet black. For Joe Gibbs, the idea of launching the Golf Channel seemed as far away as possible at moments like these. But for more than three and a half years, he persisted. There wasn't going to be an option of failure. I just kept going through one obstacle after another, and there were a lot of them. This is the story of the events leading up to Golf Channel's first day on the air. We would sit there and every day and say, oh, we're screwed, there's no way we can do this. Of an idea met with resistance and skepticism. There was a headline uh, shortly after our announcement that said, having trouble sleeping, help is on the way the Golf Channel. Of the final frantic months before launch. We had editors that were working in janitorial rooms that we were just expanding faster than we could build. Of a partnership between a visionary businessman and an iconic golfer. People loved Arnold Palmer. I loved Arnold Palmer. I wanted to do it with Arnold and I'm glad I did. All right, Joseph. On January 17, 1995, Arnold Palmer threw a switch and the cable TV network devoted to this sport debuted. Chuck, what is golf? That's it. I'm Rich Lerner, and this 
is day one. A dream three and a half years in the making came true. The Golf Channel became a reality. Three, roll A, track A. 1995, Golf Channel commercial. You have golf clubs. You have a golf bag. You have golf artwork. You have golf furniture. You have a dog named Arnie. What's next? The Golf Channel presents... From the beginning, Joe Gibbs insisted that the Golf Channel would be Golf's Channel, a platform to promote the game by people who love the game. Hello and welcome, everyone. I'm Tom Nettles. Well, Jack, thank you very much for joining us. It's a pleasure to spend some time with you. Welcome inside Studio AP. This is Morning Drive. Since 1995, it has been exactly that. In Ireland's Shane Lowry is an open champion. A constant drumbeat of thousands of hours of live golf. Make room on the mountaintop. Tiger Woods has matched Sam Snead with 82 PGA Tour wins. Pre and post game shows. The winds are playing a factor and 18 makes it very difficult. Well, the hardest thing for a player to do is adjust to something that is not constant. Instruction. You make solid contact on a side slope. It's amazing how you can alter that steep swing plane. And original programming. It's Matthew McConaughey. All right, all right, all right. On Faherty. It's become such an intrinsic part of the game that it's easy to forget what golf on television used to look like. Golf Channel co-founder Joe Gibbs. When I first got into the game in the late 80s, early 90s, golf was on for two hours on Sunday afternoon. That was about it. Tomorrow at 4 Eastern, 1 Pacific, coverage of the Western Open will continue with live final round action on CBS Sports. The networks were turning off coverage at 6 o'clock on Sunday afternoon, and I couldn't even see the end of tournaments. I was frustrated with that. Simpson at minus 2. Has this putt to win. He missed it. Playoff. Let's go back to Brent Musburger. I don't think anybody could win that golf tournament, but of course... Coming up on CBS... To those who knew Gibbs, it came as no surprise that he envisioned a better future for golf on television. He had made similar bets in previous business ventures. But I had been able to see a number of businesses that were going to be good in the future. I was fairly early in cable, building and operating cable. We were fairly early in cellular telephone business. Gibbs' success as an entrepreneur in the cable and cellular industries made him, he says modestly, a little bit of money. By 1990, he was semi-retired and living in Birmingham, Alabama, in the exclusive Shoal Creek Golf Community, site of that year's PGA Championship. Before the tournament, Gibbs volunteered to have a player stay in his new guest house. Two days before the first round, he learned we would be hosting Arnold Palmer, and his wife, Winnie. So I find out when he teed off. I, I go out to number five, and he's coming up on the tee box. I tell the marshal I've got to talk to him. And I stand there on the tee box, walked up, and I put my hand out. And I said, Arnold, I'm Joe Gibbs. And you're going to be staying with me this week. And he kind of looks at me and cocks his head. And I said, look, all I know is Winnie's over there unpacking. And he said, oh, great, come on. So I walked with him the rest of the practice round, and he stayed with us for four nights in Winnie. Every night, having dinner at our house across the driveway, we had beers together in the afternoon. When he would come in, he'd pop open his trunk, start rewrapping his clubs, and we'd stand there for two hours talking and drinking beer. And after four days, he says, we want you guys to come to Florida and see where we live and play golf. And I had just started playing golf. I'd only broken 100 once. And I said, well, you're not about to see me swing a golf club. And he said, oh, well, I've never been turned down. But he said, you're going to get the invitation. It's up to you whether you come. We got the invitation, and we went. He's been to my house. I've been to his. We're friends, you know? And I thought, well, that's it. I mean, I'll probably never see him again. March of 91, nine months or so later, 
I'm on an airplane reading about the current state of cable, how we're going to have capacity to open up for new programming. I start, like everybody else, putting a list together of what people would like to see. Golf was at the top of my list. Gibbs wanted to take advantage of the emerging market for niche programming, and he had good reason to believe he could succeed. In 1991, several niche channels had already made their way into millions of viewers' homes. CNN, ESPN, the Cartoon Network, MTV, and the Weather Channel. But Golf Channel would be different, a subset of a subset, the first sports channel to be dedicated to a single sport. Gibbs soon had a national survey done to measure the potential audience for such a channel. The study showed me that at that point in time, there was about 25 million golfers, 12 million core golfers. But there was an audience that wanted to watch golf that didn't even play. So when you added all that together, it was about a 44 million viewer base. You do the national survey, you're starting to poke around, think this could be an idea. What's next and where do you bring Arnold in? Look, I knew very little about golf. I'd never been in production and I didn't have any real big money to launch a channel. But I called Arnold and I said, I've got an idea I want to talk to you about. He wound up flying to Birmingham and I showed him my research. So Arnold listened to my pitch for an hour. I told him my idea and he said, I don't know if we can make any money at it, but he said, I know somebody can help us. He picks up the phone, calls Mark McCormick, who had been his agent at that point for a long time, built IMG in a very big business. They knew everything that was to know about golf and production. And why somebody like IMG had not already done this, I don't know, but they had. He says, Mark, now Joe's got an idea. He's going to come to New York and talk to you about it. And he says, Mark, this is our deal. Joe and I. So don't try to steal it, basically. So he hangs up, says, now you go to New York and see Mark and talk to him. To prepare for the meeting, Gibbs read every book Mark McCormick had written. As he arrived in New York at IMG's offices, he laid out his vision to a curious, yet cautious audience. Alistair Johnston, Arnold Palmer's longtime business manager. Needless to say, there was a certain amount of skepticism about it. All golf, all the time, 24 hours. We needed to know exactly what Joe wanted Arnold to do, whether he was going to be involved as an investor, whether he was just going to be a promotional arm, whether or not he was actually going to be part of the management team, and i.e. a decision maker. Arnold needed that. Arnold hadn't thought through all of that. His job was to be enthusiastic, and that was his natural reaction. And his enthusiasm, you know, certainly permeates the room. At the end of the meeting, McCormick agreed to help Gibbs develop his business plan for $250,000. We're obviously predisposed to assist because at the end of the day, Arnold was our number one and most influential client, and he did pull a lot of our strings. It was almost like we were going to the party. It was just a question of what we were going to wear. As you're getting into this and you're starting to research the numbers and bring in the experts and consultants, what's Arnold's view? He's watching. He's watching over Mark's shoulder. Golf Channel co-founder Arnold Palmer. It excited me very much to think that we might do something like this. On the other hand, my skepticism didn't just disappear. It hung in there. And and I expressed that to Joe a lot of times. I was the devil's advocate a little bit, uh, giving him the hard questions about how it was going to work 24 hours a day. He's just waiting to see how the business plan turns out and what Mark thought of it. And when we finished the business plan, Mark was very high on it. He thought it made a lot of sense. And I did too. Arnold, I went to then in May of 92. I said, I want to do this, but I don't want to have to do it with Jack. <laughs> I wasn't threatening him. I was just saying, you're the guy. And with all due respect, and I don't mean in any way to disparage Jack Nicklaus, who's the greatest major champion of all time. Absolutely. Why did Arnold matter? It 
couldn't really have been anyone else. Well, in my mind, it couldn't have. Because people loved Arnold Palmer. I loved Arnold Palmer. I wanted to do it with Arnold. And so I said, now look, here's how much money I've invested today. And I want to do this with you. But you have to reimburse me for half of what I put up, and then I'll give you half the stock. And he said, well, now, you know, I've always, always gotten my piece for my name. And I said, Arnold, look, I know that. But this time, you're going to have to put up money. I said, I got to go raise $100 million. And I want every one of those people to know that you have skin in the game. And he heard me. He said, well, let me think about it a couple of days. So a couple of days later, I get a phone call. He's actually in his jet. And he called me and he said, where do you mean wire the money, partner? That was a good sign. Sweet music to your ears. It absolutely was. Joe was the guy that made me feel comfortable. And he was one that if you're going to do something, you want to be in the foxhole with him. Gibbs now had a crucial new partner in his corner. With one of his first steps, he called an old friend, Chris Mervin, a local lawyer from Birmingham. The first thing I did was, uh, you know, we filed articles in corporation. And to this day, the name that's on the corporate papers is, is not the name that everybody knows Golf Channel by. It was TGC Inc., Golf Channel Inc., but it was TGC, and the reason for that was uh, we didn't want to signal to the world what, you know, we were up to, and, and Joe was, you know, very cognizant of the fact that there may be other people who are thinking about doing this, and no need to tip them off as to what we're working on. I mean, we kept things so secret. I mean, I couldn't even tell my law partners what I was working on. And I was asked many times, <laughs> what are you working on? What's TGC mean? I said, I can't tell you. So I had to tie up all the pieces for the business quietly before anybody knew what we were doing. So I raised $6 million from friends and family to keep their mouth shut. I then went to people and tied up rights the business plan Gibbs developed with IMG called for $100 million in funding. In order to attract that kind of money from investors, he also had to secure rights to the most essential programming in golf, live tournaments. With the help of Mark McCormick and his team, we had acquired options to buy rights for the European tour, the Australasian tour, a few other scattered events that IMG had an interest in. These contracts are good to the end of 93, but it'll have a clause that says, I'm going to give you a half a million dollar deposit. If I raise the money I need to launch the channel, this contract's valid, and I've got a year, a year and a half to get that done. If I don't raise the money, you keep the half million bucks. So we had quite a bit of programming, but we knew we needed the PGA Tour to have the credibility to raise the kind of money we needed to raise and to you know get the interest of the public in our product. All I can remember is that Joe said, you need to go down to the PGA Tour and we need to start working on an agreement. I went down with him for a couple of days and finally at the end of the week, we had an agreement in principle that would be signed someday. And it was around that period of time and probably while I was in Ponte Vedra that it you know, became clear to me that Ted Turner and his team were being considered as an alternative to our team and Arnold Palmer. Unlike Gibbs, billionaire Ted Turner had the money and a proven track record in cable, having already launched several successful channels, including CNN, TBS, and TNT. Gibbs, now facing a serious competitor, altered his game plan. The first one that announced publicly what they were going to do had the edge. So there was one thing to not let anybody know until we got 
these pieces put together, it was another thing to let somebody else announce before we did. And we didn't have everything we needed at that point. We certainly didn't have the money. But I talked to Arnold about it and I said, there's a risk, but I think we need to be the first ones out there to announce, and he agreed. So we went to the Bob Hope in February of 93, and that's the day we announced what we were gonna do. I'd like to introduce to you to the living legend, Mr. Arnold Palmer. Thank you, sir. I used to come in here to tell him about my golf scores. What it is that we are venturing on is a 24-hour golf channel network. It will be called The Golf Channel, and it will run 24 hours on cable, and it will carry a variety of shows from tournaments to dramatics of golf, instructional golf, quiz shows, just about anything you can think about in golf will be run on this channel. I think we all knew it was coming. It was just a question of when it was gonna come, and we're here. Gibbs and Palmer's public announcement provided a significant stiff arm to Turner's bid to launch his own golf channel. Two months later, during the Masters, they ended Turner's bid altogether when they signed the PGE Tour rights agreement that they had negotiated months earlier. We had planned on going to Arnold's rental house and sitting in the dining room to do this. We didn't have a key, couldn't get in, so we just signed it on the hood of my rental car and everybody was happy. I know I was excited because that was such an important aspect of getting this thing off the ground. I think from the tour side, they were going, well, I hope we made the right decision. <laughs> the PGA Tour chose us over Turner, and Turner had, you know, vast experience and plenty of money in a big organization. That, I am absolutely sure, happened because of Arnold, not because of me. Someone who had knowledge told me that it was brought up in the next board meeting at Turner, and Ted's comment was, well, just let Arnold have his golf channel. Gibbs now faced his biggest challenge, raising $100 million. So I'm out beating the bushes. I've gone Monday through Friday having four, five, six meetings a day all over the country. I had brokers helping me in New York. I'm all over the West Coast. I'm talking to institutions. I'm talking to wealthy people. I'm talking to everybody. It was a tremendous effort to do that having appointments, pitching it over and over and over again can be pretty exhausting, especially when after a while, you know, you're not getting as much interest as you would have liked to have gotten. Alistair Johnston, Arnold Palmer's longtime business manager. That was not an easy assignment. Joe spent a lot of time on that. And he was a good salesman, but all of this would have been a total waste of time if we couldn't get the money together to do it. Faced with skepticism from cautious investors, Gibbs also endured pessimism from an unexpected constituency, the golf world. CBS anchor, Jim Nance. As any great idea, when it's first presented, it's met with tremendous second-guessing, doubt, and ridicule. Matt Scalisi, Vice President of Network Operations. A lot of people had made fun of us. A lot of people had made fun of the concept. Their image of us was that we were ragtag, that it was going to be kind of pathetic programming, that it was going to be boring. The whole dynamics was changing from print to media to live golf. It was hurting them, so they wanted to hurt us. So there was a lot of negative articles written, a lot of them. I'll never forget, there was a headline shortly after our announcement that said, having trouble sleeping, help is on the way, the golf channel as if watching the Golf Channel was gonna help you sleep. Doubted publicly and rejected by investors privately, Gibbs also had another problem. The rights deals that he signed with all of the major tours were set to expire at the end of 1993. In the arc of Golf Channel's arduous journey to air, this moment was the painful and uncertain bottom. Then in the fall of 1993, 
his partner of 18 months, requested a meeting. There is a story. It's become sort of the stuff of legend, a bit of Golf Channel mythology. You take it, recreate it, and Arnold's famous line. So that day you're asking me about in the boardroom is a pivotal day. So during that 18 months, Arnold called me once and said, Joe, my advisors are telling me I can't do this. This is too risky. So I flew to Bay Hill and I had a meeting with him and talked him back into staying in the boat. Now he's called me a second time. And this is the fall of 93. And he says, Joe, they're just telling me I cannot do this. It's too risky. So I flew back down there. This time he had two or three of his advisors, manager in the room, a couple attorneys. If this was a day that he was going to fish or cut bait. So I went through the whole spiel with him and, and all the lawyers in the boardroom. And um, when I finished, everybody's quiet. Arnold looked around the room and he said, guys, if I hadn't tried to hit it through the trees a few times in my life, none of us would be here. Alistair Johnston. The response in the room was, well, we're doing it. <laughs> that was it. I was then determined that we were going to make it work and, and do it. Gibbs had Palmer back in his corner. He then went to work raising an additional $3 million to renew his tournament rights deals through 1994. Those contract extensions bought Gibbs valuable time while he considered how to raise $100 million. Columnist Jim Murray recommended cashing in on Arnold Palmer's popularity. No problem, Murray wrote. Just take Arnold by the hand, lead him into the bank, say I want $100 million, and there'll be no questions asked. Chris Mervin. There were promising meetings. There were probably disappointing meetings, but nothing tangible really came through until finally Joe found the right person to present this to, and that's when things really started to happen in a very fast and quick way. On January 2nd, of 94, so happens that I have breakfast with Tim Neer, who was the vice chairman of Continental Cablevision down in Palm Beach. Tim, listen to the story. He's a golfer. He's buddies with Brian Roberts, head of Comcast. Tim said, well, let's work on this. Tim Neer, one of the most powerful people in the cable industry in the 1990s, also idolized Arnold Palmer as a child. Gibbs didn't know that, but asked near to meet with Palmer at Bay Hill Club and Lodge, where Palmer lived. I never picked up a golf club till I watched Arnold play golf. I mean, he's the reason I was playing golf. So you can imagine walking into Arnold's office. It was difficult to be there with a business purpose and be the fan that I was. And um, I like to tell you that I was able to separate the two, and I tried. I was just another... You know, golf fan who was sitting there with his idol, thinking to myself, is this the craziest thing in the world? I'm sitting here in Arnold Palmer's office talking about doing a business deal with him. How did this happen? After a couple of hours with Arnold, I was so impressed with the man and, and kind of the businessman. You know, I thought I was the guy that was going to ask all the questions, and it was Arnold who asked most of the questions. And it's probably that that impressed me the most and is the reason why I told him I would spend some more time on it. So I'm driving away, you know, stars in my eyes, and thinking, all right, now what am I going to do? You know, I told him that I'm going to pursue this. I'm not certain that as a business it's viable, but I got to find a way to do this because what an opportunity to work with the greatest golfer that ever lived. At Near's direction, Gibbs reworked his business plan. Neer then made a phone call to Brian Roberts, president of the Comcast Corporation. I called Brian within days of settling with Joe what the, what the business model would be and told him that we were going to do it, that I wanted him to do it with me. We talked about the amount of money each of us would have to put in. More importantly, the number of subscribers that each of our companies would have to commit when we launched. Once he said he was in, then that was the moment when I said, okay, we're going to do this. 
After years of painstaking searching for funding, Gibbs had found the one person who could raise the money he needed, and he did it in a single phone call. Once Brian and I were in, I mean, literally in a 15-minute phone call, we worked through the amount of money we were both going to put in. They pull in three other cable operators, six of them. Collectively, they'll only give me $60 million. Won't give us any more. Business plan still says we need 100, but they'll only give me 60. So the choice is, do we get started with 60, or do we go somewhere else? Well, I've been working at it too long. I took the 60. Gibbs had the money he needed to launch the Golf Channel. Now, he needed someone to build it. His alma mater, the University of Alabama, directed him to a higher power, literally. The Alabama-based Eternal Word Television Network and their senior vice president of engineering and satellite operations, Matt Scalisi. I'm a man of faith. I always believe that God leads you to the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. Building EWTN from nothing, all of those things that you had to learn because you were a member of a very small team were going to become just the education I needed to do uh, what Joe Gibbs needed me to do. That's why I believe I was born to be the guy who built the Golf Channel. One of Scalisi's first tasks, selecting a location for the Golf Channel headquarters. We had narrowed it down pretty much to Birmingham, Alabama, Tampa, Florida, Ponte Vedra, Florida, possibly Atlanta, and then Orlando. Birmingham, to my thinking, was the perfect place because I didn't want to move. And I, I foresaw this great facility just across this pond from our offices and the satellite dishes gleaming off the water. And I remember going to Joe and saying something like, can you just imagine what the building will look like across the pond? And Joe, having left it to me to make the decision, finally looked at me and said, Matt, we're not building it in Birmingham. Nobody's going to move from New York or Connecticut or from a major network to move to Birmingham, Alabama. I knew we had to come to Florida for a lot of reasons. Why? Well, first of all, the weather in January, February, you go out on a golf course in Birmingham, January, February, and see what it looks like on camera. Not too good. Florida's a right-to-work state. All of the three major bodies of golf, PGA Tour, LPGA Tour, PGA of America, are all home-based here. Now, Orlando had a lot of things going for it. Most importantly, it was the winter home of Arnold Palmer. Alistair Johnston. This idea was conceived in Alabama, but um, Joe certainly recognized that to get Arnold fully on board, he was, would have to come to Florida, and Orlando in particular, and southeast Orlando in particular, close to Bay Hill. That wasn't entirely a coincidence that that's where the, the plant was set up. Gibbs and Scalise selected an office warehouse 4.6 miles from Palmer's Bay Hill Club and Lodge. On one end was a simulator company that stayed in place. Uh, in the middle was a warehouse where Martin Marietta kept uh, missile parts. And on the north end of the building was a Disney timeshare marketing office where when you walked in the door, they would walk you down the hallway and you could simulate what all of their one and two and three bedroom timeshare condos were like. It was kind of funny to see. That ultimately is the building that would become the Golf Channel. It was Commerce Center Drive back then. I think it's now called Golf Channel Drive. On Father's Day of 94, I had lunch with my wife and children, packed up my car, drove to Orlando and uh, moved into a corporate apartment that Joe had arranged for me. On the day I arrived in Orlando, I was the Golf Channel. There was nobody else there but me. I remember standing inside that building alone with my hands on my hips, looking around at this empty space. Scalisi had been given a blank canvas, but he didn't have an unlimited amount of time. Gibbs told him that he wanted to be on the air in early 1995. With that compressed timeline, Scalisi hired an Orlando-based firm to construct the interior of the Golf Channel. He then began working with the Harris Corporation, based in Cincinnati, Ohio, to design, 
and build the entire technical infrastructure. We went up to Cincinnati and we taped off the walls exactly as they would be in Orlando on the floor of a warehouse. And everything was laid out to be identical. Each production control room, each tape facility room, each edit suite. Joe Mack, the Harris Corporation. We masked out the individual rooms down to, you know, less than an inch, obviously. And we would measure, he would measure, we would measure again. You could walk down the halls in Cincinnati and know that it was exactly like walking down the halls in Orlando. Making sure, for instance, that the biggest piece that had to fit in every room, that there was a door big enough to get it in. So when we did separate it and take it down to Orlando, that we could physically unbox it, put it in, make it work, and have it look fantastic. While Scalise oversaw construction, Bob Greenway, a veteran television executive who had worked at HBO, ESPN, and ABC, settled into his new role overseeing production. When I got to Orlando, we had one little rental set of offices, and we had a receptionist, and that was pretty much it. I hired two production guys who showed up, and we would sit in our office and look at this huge grease board where we had laid out potential shows and production people and talent and it was a big just blank board and we would sit there and every day and say oh, we're screwed there's no way we can do this job one was to staff up a task that greenway found to be easier than he anticipated early on actually i got a call from my contemporary at ESPN, whom I knew very well. He said, quit stealing all of my people. And I said, you know what? I haven't called one of your people, but dozens of them have called me. We were inundated with resumes from people. I, I still remember uh, this uh, mechanical engineer just loved golf. He sent me a putter he made to show his passion for the sport and said, I don't know anything about broadcast, but if there's anything in the world I can do for you, I'll move there in a heartbeat. People were just thrilled to come visit us and talk to us and, and pitch their skills to us. So that helped a great deal in our picking up the talent and people behind the scenes that we hired. Mike Ritz. Here I was, the afternoon drive time sports guy in Washington, and I announced on the air that I was going to be leaving to come work at this thing called the Golf Channel. And I was the first person hired to do the show, which became Golf Central. I took a significant cut in pay, but that's fine. It was all about being a part of this. Anchor Craig Can. I walked in the door the first day, and you don't know anybody, but you've heard of a few names. One by one, somebody else would get added to the team, and you're like, how you doing? Nice to meet you. Dwayne Ballin, who hosted Golf Today, very stoic, very professional. Brian Hammonds, you know, the captain of the ship, a guy that had been in a local market for years upon years. I mean, I admired him. I learned things from him. Reporter Jennifer Mills. We had Tom Nettles, who I loved, who was also a nut. He almost ran me over in a golf cart when we were shooting a promo. Anchor Brian Hammonds. Jennifer Mills was so good. Linda Cardwell was so good. It was such a great group of people that they put together to be the original cast, if you will, of the Golf Channel. Bob Greenway. Sometime, I would say maybe early fall, late summer, early fall, in a discussion with Joe, he said, well, you know, when can we launch? And I said, Joe, we're still building out facilities. We're still hiring a ton of people. I mean, safely, maybe the middle of next year. And Joe said to me, well, the investors have said January. So that was kind of a ouch right then but it's like okay that's what it is that's what they wanted that's my job the date gibbs selected january 17th 1995 producer jeff himes it was like a ticking clock because at a certain point we're on air it's not like just to move into to start making phone calls we're on the air and so we couldn't not make it 
Master Control Operator, Ken Guerin. You would leave here on a Friday and there'd be a hallway. And you come back on Monday, the hallway was gone, there was a 90 degree turn and there was an office. We had editors that were working in janitorial rooms that we were just expanding faster than we could build. Yeah, we showed up, we came in, there was a front desk. Nobody had to wear badges at that point. I think that changed a couple of months in when we saw people walk in the halls that nobody, <laughs> nobody knew. Mike Ritz. When I got here, this building that we're still in, there was no carpet on the floors. And we'd, have, we'd had some great putting contests. 50 to 75 yards of, of a hallway with no carpet on it. That was some fast green right there. That uh, ball was really rolling. It was the best of times, and it was the worst of times. It was just a matter of getting it all together and ready by the 17th of January. Reporter Jennifer Mills. Our first producer was a fellow named Mark Friedman, and I do remember he had a bucket in his office, and anytime you said PGA Tour golfer instead of PGA Tour player or LPGA, golfer instead of LPGA player, which was the proper terminology of player, you had to put a quarter in the bucket. And I do remember his bucket was full. Craig Can. We were in meetings about how to write scripts and how to talk golf. I mean, we weren't allowed to say traps. We had to say bunkers. We weren't allowed to say hole-in-ones. You had to say holes-in-one, right? You had to get all the lingo right. I mean, we went through real training because we were told very early on, the viewer is smart. Golf viewers play the game. They understand everything about the game. So I think there was pressure on a lot of us. Production associate, Scott Van Pelt. You gotta remember that, that what this was, was a group of people who had come from all over the country and moved to Orlando, Florida to start a cable channel that covered one niche sport. And there was plenty of questions about like, Who's gonna watch it? And you think, well, people that like golf are really passionate about, it. they'll probably watch it. Well, okay, cool, but what are we even putting on the air? Like, what's it look like? I don't think anyone necessarily knew. We were kind of figuring it out as we went. Bob Greenway. I remember early on, a month or so after I got there, I sort of created a programming model because we had not. I mean, it was obvious we were gonna do tournaments. It was obvious that we were gonna do news, instruction, you know, maybe some travel stuff, but like, what can we do? Obviously, golfers are passionate about their sport. They're passionate about their involvement. You got the instructors involved, all the name instructors signed up early on. And then we got the viewers involved through a variety of programs where they had a chance to participate, and in some cases, try to improve their games. That single strategic programming decision would sustain Golf Channel with popular content for years to come and give avid golfers access to world-renowned instructors like Jim Flick, David Ledbetter, and Dave Pelz, all from their living room. If you walked around this building, our motto was, this is golf's channel. And the most important golfer is the person that's watching. People were starved to be able to talk about the game. I think that's why this place grew so quickly. Greenway also secured another important stream of content from an unexpected and grateful partner. I remember very early on, I went to meet with Augusta National, who had never allowed their annual highlight films to be broadcast anywhere. Their highlight films were not cut for broadcast. They were not cut to time. They were not slugged for breaks. They were what they were. They were for the members. And I remember that early meeting I had at Augusta National with their GM, and we were talking, and I said, thank you so much for being helpful. And he said, Bob, you gotta understand, we're thrilled. Golf has its own channel now. We'll all do everything we can to try to help you. And that truly was the spirit. And it was tremendously helpful to us to get started. As January 17th, day one approached, the pressure on the staff increased. Jeff Himes. I work late. It was all about the work. I mean, I'd come in early and I'd work till 10 or 11 o'clock at night and I'd go home, grab something to eat and go to bed. I wasn't spending a lot of time doing anything else. 
Jeff Himes, a producer on the pregame show Golf Today, embodied the kind of sacrifice Golf Channel's early employees made. He relocated to Orlando from New Jersey without his wife and two daughters. For more than a year, he would work 10 straight days, then travel home to visit them. They continued without me. I would fly home, walk in the house, want to grab people and say, let's do this, let's do that. And my wife said, no, we, we have a, we have, we're organized here, we have a plan. And they're going to do this and they're going to do that. No, you can't take them out and they've got to study. And I was kind of like a visitor and I understood it. It was a very kind of unique situation that uh, you only feel in a startup. Anchor, Brian Hammonds. You had all these people coming from all over the country to a strange city. You didn't know anybody, but the people you worked with. Now, I was married. Those of us that were married, it was a different deal than the single people that were moving to uh, Orlando. They'd get their apartment in Metro West. Most of them lived in Metro West. And uh, the single people had a lot of fun. Mike Ritz. There was a restaurant bar here in town, part of a small franchise called Sam Sneeds. There'd be 50 of us going there at night after work. Everybody from all over. It was, it was kind of like going to college, you get to know everybody in your dorm. I want to say most of us were single at the time. And um, there may have been others who forgot they were. A lot of people were jealous of my apartment because I was walking distance, or more accurately, stumbling distance from Sam Sneeds. It was a you know, work hard, play hard kind of atmosphere. And we had a lot of fun. Craig can. I've heard the whole Animal House tie in to the way it was. Were there some other shenanigans maybe going on? There might have been. I wasn't a part of all of those. I heard some stories. In November of 1994, Matt Scalise and his team at the Harris Corporation in Cincinnati, Ohio, delivered the technical infrastructure the guts of the Golf Channel to Orlando using several 18-wheelers. For Joe Mack, a veteran TV man who had been part of the broadcast team at the Ronald reagan Mikhail Gorbachev political summit in Iceland, the commute to Orlando made even him anxious. We made sure when they left our facility here in Cincinnati that we knew exactly where they were the whole time and then, uh, oh, a half a dozen of us got on an airplane, and I'll never forget meeting those trucks down in Orlando. Matt Scalisi. A lot of blood and sweat and muscle went toward rolling that stuff in and putting it in place. And what it gave the Golf Channel was, at the time, the most modern, the most capable production facilities in the world. The first truly digital facility, it was groundbreaking. It was truly groundbreaking. Golf Channel co-founder, Joe Gibbs. Now here we are, a niche channel startup. We're the only studio in the United States that's all digital. ESPN sent people here to see what we had done. ABC, NBC, everybody sent people here to look at these studios to see what we had done. The production staff now had the equipment they needed to go on air. They would spend their final frantic two months before launch getting familiar with it. As we brought the facility up room by room, area by area, phase by phase, I uh, was pretty sure it was all going to work, but it had not all worked yet. It wasn't going to work until we plugged in the last plug. Producer Jeff Himes. A lot of people talk about this business being uh, controlled chaos. It was almost uncontrolled chaos at the beginning. People are running around and trying to get ready and equipment and this and that. Everybody, you know, just it's it was a little bit of madness leading up to launch. Reporter Jennifer Mills. You had to climb over cables and around boxes of things and crawl through little nooks and crannies because we were just filled to the brim with different pieces of equipment and all kinds of things that were being unloaded. So you were constantly working in an environment that felt like a house that someone dropped the boxes off in and just hadn't unpacked yet. There was so much. We're waiting for control rooms to be built, tape rooms to be ready, and edit bays to be set up. Now, this is before we went on the air, right? But still, we're going to get this stuff together. Bob Greenway. I worried whether we are going to make it right up to that first broadcast. I mean, you do. It's new. You, you, you double-check everything. You go over stuff. 
10, 9, 8, Okay, guys, we're going to reverse. 6, Here we go. 5, 4, 3, roll 95. Delay. And track 95. Roll 94. Master control operator, Ken Guerin. I remember rehearsals. Producer had just gotten hired. He comes in. He says, okay, at the end of the show, I want you to bring down all the key lights on the people, and then we'll run credits. And I said, you have on or off? He goes, what? He said, well, just dim the lights. I go, we don't have dimmers. I said, and we don't have 50 fingers on one hand to do them all at once. Producer, Jeff Himes. I remember right before we went on the air, I was here late making some final notes or getting ready or in the edit room. And I was walking down a corridor and I, I got to the corner and Matt Scalise was coming the other direction. And he looked at me and I looked at him and it was dead quiet. And I said, Matt, stop and listen. It'll never be like this again. Starting tomorrow, there'll never be a dull moment in this building. Finally, more than three and a half years after Joe Gibbs first conceived of Golf Channel, day one, January 17th, arrived. The network would sign on at 7 p.m. with two hours of live programming, beginning with The Approach, a preview show highlighting what viewers could expect to see. At a nearby hotel, Gibbs and Palmer hosted a countdown to launch party for more than 600 people. Reporter Jennifer Mills. You're throwing a heck of a party here tonight. Well, we're having a good time. We're excited. It's been a long time coming, so we're going to relax tonight and enjoy ourselves. I had just had a baby a couple weeks earlier, my first child, and one of the biggest thoughts I had was, how in the world am I going to fit into this little black dress and stand there and interview Arnold and Joe? I asked a lot out of the zipper that night, but it worked out. It's been a long time coming. You've got to be proud. Well, I am very excited, and uh, this is fantastic. We'll see you at the countdown. Thanks. Okay, thank you. The launch party. Clocks counting down. How close are we, Joe? Two minutes. We're all nervous. What do you guess you were thinking in those final moments before Golf Channel is on the air? The relief after three and a half years of beating my head against the wall that we're finally on the air was tremendous. Moments before 7 p.m., Gibbs and Palmer, the men most responsible for this night, pulled a switch with an oversized golf ball on top and ceremoniously signaled Golf Channel's arrival on air. All right, Joseph. Matt Scalisi, Vice President of Network Operations. When Joe and Arnold pulled that giant lever down, I was actually the one who pushed the button that started the golf channel. Standby VTA, opening video. I was standing in master control with my finger on the fade from black switch, and it called the machine to roll the opening video. Four, three, two, roll A, track A. And the first face on the air was George H.W. Bush. Good evening, my fellow Americans and my fellow golfers. I'm delighted to be part of this special occasion as the Golf Channel goes on the air tonight. And what would follow for the next several minutes were congratulations from dozens and dozens of celebrities and TV personalities and golfers. Arnie, congratulations on the Golf Channel. It's going to be the greatest thing for golf ever. You're the best. See you, buddy. See you. Where are you going? Got to get going. The Golf Channel starts today. And uh, the final piece of the video is Arnold sitting behind his desk. It's time to tee it up. Roll it, boys. And sure enough, we take to the live scene inside the studio. Going down to the gym, camera two, stand by. Linda and Brian's mic. Push two, and it's all through. And go, Linda. Good evening, everyone. You are watching the Golf Channel, the first 24-hour network devoted exclusively to the greatest game ever conceived, golf. We are live from our fabulous new studios in Orlando, Florida, and this is The Approach. I'm Linda Cardwell. 
And I'm Brian Hammond. This truly is an historic night. Imagine golf anytime you want it, 24 hours a day, seven days a week. First of all, I'm wearing a tux, so that, that doesn't happen a lot. I felt like David Letterman or something. We've got a live studio audience in there with journalists and, and dignitaries and people that were invited to watch the launch of the Golf Channel. That gave you an idea that, okay, it's, it's opening night. That is why we're here tonight, to tell you what you'll be seeing and who you'll be seeing on the Golf Channel. There's Golf Central. A lot we of hit golf the air looking like the most polished network on the air, that we were going to deliver compelling, interesting content. We were going to take the game of golf and break it down in ways that no one had ever had time to break it down before. Stand by A and Mike Ritz package on A. Three, two, roll A, take A. You'll learn which woman on tour is the deadliest putter inside 10 feet. You'll see which player on the PGA Tour is the best at saving par from the sand. Who's the most accurate senior with the long iron? We'll give the stats that tell it all. Stand by end of the show. We're coming back to two on a two shot. In the final moments of the opening hour, Brian Hammonds delivered a line Stand by, Brian. that would become his catchphrase. In three, two, push and dissolve. Thanks for watching and keep it in the short grass. Killer Mike's music up. I think it was Mark Friedman that wrote the show, or our producer at the time, and he wrote that in. That was the way he had me saying goodbye, and I said, well, what is this? He said, ah, it's, it's kind of cool. You might want to say it. So I, I just kept it. I said it on the studio shows ever since. People would come up to me and say, hey, I used to watch you all the time. Keep it in the short grass. You're keeping the short grass guy. It, it, it floors me that people still remember that. I had a guy yesterday tell me that. That's a wrap, everybody. We're on to Golf Talk Live. At 8 p.m., the first of more than 450 episodes of Golf Talk Live premiered. That night's guest, Arnold Palmer. Golf Talk Live host, Peter Kessler. He's a living legend, an American icon, and he'll be our special guest tonight on Golf Talk Live. Thirty minutes in, the show introduced what would become one of its most popular staples, viewer call-ins. Joe Mack, the Harris Corporation. I was sitting in the master control facility and the phone rings and it's Bob Hope. And Bob Hope said, I'm calling to talk to the Golf Channel. I said, hold on, please. And I transferred it back and then I'm listening to everything come across master control. There's Bob Hope. Mr. Hope, is that you? Yes, it is. How you doing? Fine. How are you, Robert? Who's this? Arnold Palmer. Arnold, how are you? I'm fine. How are you? I'm fine. Congratulations on this. Oh, thank you. Did you play 18 holes today? No, I didn't play 18, but I played 12. Good for <laughs> you. I'm happy to hear I that. I ran out of balls. <laughs> <laughs> That's wonderful. At 9 p.m., Golf Channel's live programming ended. In the studio, Joe Gibbs led a round of applause for a job well done. The staff then gathered for a toast. Anchor Craig Can. I still have this champagne bottle with the date on it. To this day, it's on a shelf at my house. Alistair Johnston. A lot of us looked around and said, well, I'm not sure we ever thought we'd be here. Bob Greenway. It was one of those snapshots in time. We all have those moments that we remember. It was just like, we made it, guys. Joe and Arnold had an idea, and that idea is now a reality. Despite launching in only 10,000 households, what once seemed impossible had now been an unqualified success. Golf Channel was on the air. We created something. You know, it's fine to go somewhere and help something grow, but to actually create it literally from nothing, there's just no feeling in the world like that. January 17th, 1995. Day one was now done. Matt Scalisi. We had come to the end of this marathon only to find that it was the start of another marathon. Five, four, open their mics, three. We had to feed this machine 24 hours a day, seven days a week. Search your push on two and dissolve through. 
There was going to be no stopping. And go, guys. Our network is now 24 hours young. A dream three and a half years in the making came true. The Golf Channel became a reality. Day One was hosted by me, Rich Lerner. It was produced and written by Dominic Dastily. Sound design and mixing done by Rob Reinbolt and Troy Stone. Principal sound editing, Michael Sanabria. Field audio was recorded by Scott Blinder, Ray Garcia, George Mashanis, Rob Reinbolt, Zach Shiwi, and Chris Van Dorn. Library search assistance was provided by Chris Ajo, Mesa Graham, and Gio Urbina. Production control recordings voiced by Chris Lincoln. Audio courtesy provided by Jeopardy Productions Incorporated. The coordinating producer of the feature department is Corey Kozak. The supervising producer of digital content is Paul Kazmerzak. Vice president of digital content is Fran Solomita. Special thanks to Cheryl Antonelli, Ken Garin, Joe Gibbs, Jeff Himes, Alastair Johnston, Tim Neer, and Kirsten Sheen. Thanks for listening. Do summer projects your way with Memorial Day savings from The Home Depot. With free delivery on over 2 million items, you can make the most of summer grilling and dig into gardening. Plus, get same-day delivery on thousands of products like power tools and storage to tackle any last-minute garage project. Summer your way with Memorial Day savings from The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Order select and stock items by 4 p.m. subject to availability. Hear that? It's the call of the Crave. And when the Crave calls, you know what to do. Try the $5 Bacon Bundle, because the only thing better than a White Castle slider is a White Castle slider topped with crispy hickory-smoked bacon. So pick any two of either the Bacon Cheese Slider, 1921 Bacon Cheese Slider, or Chicken Bacon Ranch Slider, and also get a small fry for just $5 with the $5 Bacon Bundle. White Castle. Follow your Crave.